Well, welcome to this uh, budget week special, I guess. <laughs> How special does it feel? Of the professor and the hack. <laughs> uh, I am the hack, Hugh Remington, and uh, the prof, Peter Van Onselen. They're chuckling in the background. Um, hey, I've got to tell you, you, Pete, I got this little um, alert came up on my phone. It said, Labor at breaking point as leadership spill looms. And I well. thought, my God, what have I missed? So quickly go to the phone. And uh, it was from the Hobart Mercury, of course, reflecting the difficulties Labour has in Tasmania after, <laughs> not surprising difficulties after their uh, their loss in the recent election. But uh, such is the um, such are the nerve endings that you develop over the years <laughs> that you look at things and think anything's well, possible. And and it's funny, you know, like just on leadership briefly before we inevitably talk about the budget, that sort of thing happens so much less now federally, obviously, because of the new leadership rules. So people at various times might have views about Anthony Albanese, just like they did about Bill Shorten, but the new Labor leadership rules in opposition make it you know, nigh impossible to mount a quick, swift challenge of that ilk. You have to go through a, a quite laborious process, which we haven't actually seen play out yet when it comes to a challenge. And that would be even harder in government, one suspects, even though the process is the same. But on the coalition side, same deal in government, uh, even harder actually in government to offload uh, a sitting prime minister and therefore liberal leader. But theirs doesn't apply when they're in opposition. So whenever that time comes, whether it's soon or far, that Scott Morrison either loses an election or somebody else loses an election and they go into opposition. Presumably he leaves no matter what, but the new liberal opposition leader of the coalition will not enjoy all the benefits that we've seen Labor leaders and the current incumbent Prime Minister get as a result of these leadership changes. I'll be fascinated to see if that goes back to business as normal for oppositions in particular, because you know, younger, younger listeners uh, or viewers of politics would forget that it used to only ever really be, the op other than very occasionally, it was the opposition leader who was always at risk of losing, not the Prime Minister. And then suddenly you went from Rudd to Gillard, back to Rudd, to Abbott, to Turnbull, to Morrison. Uh, that was not the norm, as you would know better than anyone, Hugh. You know, it was a really big deal to, to oust a sitting Prime Minister. You know, it happened to Bob Hawke. And, and other than that, you know, good luck. Absolutely. It's a good point uh, to make there that, uh, that, that people forget it. it. It is still available to them in opposition, at least on the uh, on the on the Liberal Party side. But mm. uh, uh, I've got to say, overall, I think it's not a bad uh, manoeuvre. It leaves democracy ultimately a little bit more weighted towards the voters. They can decide who their prime minister is rather than having it uh, decided for them in an endless uh, roundabout uh, coming out of Canberra. Um, but let's let's talk to to the budget, the big matters mm. of the day. We've now heard from uh, Anthony Albanese. Um, uh, what did you make of the speech? Oh, look, I thought it was a very good speech, uh, and I thought there were some good moments in it where he was trying to, if you like, craft what his position was, always in broad terms compared to the budget itself, understandably so for an opposition leader. It's it's more of a, a statement of intent than too much detail because they don't actually have all the all the levers of government and incumbency. So I thought that what he was trying to do was, was quite solid, uh, but... I guess the question I've got is about some of the some of the details. You know, like the social housing policy. I, I, I like the idea of it, but it needs to go hand in in glove with arrangements around release of land with state governments. So I, I worry that at the detail level, um, parts of, and I also wonder at the political level actually whether a policy like that is as appealing in these mainstream electorates that need to be won over as opposed to to the labour base 
which is already voting Labor and not even considering voting for Scott Morrison. So I've got little questions like that. But in broad terms, he's, he's doing an interesting dance, isn't he? He's trying to he's trying to say on all of these individual areas, which are spendathon areas, uh, Labor is on your side. That was his line over and over again. But then at the same time as that, there's been a lot of framing to try to suggest that he's more fiscally conservative uh, than Labor leaders might necessarily be, a la Kevin Rudd. And, you know, his speech from last week you know, drew on his family background with his mum teaching him about the value of a dollar and so forth. And then there was a little bit of that in the speech too. So overall, I, I think he did what he had to do. I didn't. I don't think there was any – you tell me what you think. I didn't see anything wrong in it. It's just about whether or not uh, it's enough for him going forward. Look, I, I think uh, I think that's right. He's taking the stance about cautious future spending. So, um, you know, he hasn't borrowed the uh, Kevin Rudd line about fiscal conservative, but uh, but caution on those things. I think he does have a great difficulty, uh, and that is that uh, other than the debt issues, and they are issues we'll, we'll talk about in a minute, I'm sure, debt and deficit issues, the government you know, part of his complaint is what makes this quite an effective budget for the government. And that is that his complaint about the budget is that it's going around fixing up a whole bunch of problems that the the coalition has developed over its eight years in power that have been allowed to run mm. uh, too loose over the years that they've been in power. Mm. I've got to say, um, I wasn't particularly impressed by the the women's budget statement, even though mm. it was a you know a separate document, etc. I, I thought it was a bit a bit light on on real practical yeah, it was stuff. A- it was light on, wasn't it? I mean, I, I and I was surprised that it was light on, not because I think, you know, they've got this massive heartfelt attitude towards doing more for women, but because of the politics of them needing to be seen to be doing a damn sight more for women. I'm surprised, even just on that level alone, that there wasn't that they weren't throwing a lot more money at the problem, and also throwing money at it in the context of saying, you know, let, let's get some forums together we don't claim to have all the answers to, to make it more inclusive, particularly for big representative bodies for women. I thought one of the things which was interesting was that there was money in there. I think it was about $80 million for data collection. And this sounds very dull, but there's real value in that is that if you've got mm. a problem, you want to know what is the scale of the problem. You, you really want to drill down a bit more deeply into issues of, you know, domestic violence and other areas of kind of structural uh, headwinds that exist. We know they exist <clears throat> against women in a whole bunch of areas in Australia. So, so let's get the data around. Let's have a look. So that's fine. There's $80 million for that. But there's only $12 million for emergency housing for women fleeing um, domestic violence or abusive relationships. Now, now, admittedly, a lot of this comes out of the States. But just the optics of that, we say, yes, this really, really matters. I'm going to spend this money to find out the depth of the problem. But someone who's actually living the problem in that moment, there's nickels and dimes. There's nothing essentially in $12 million across the country across four years that's going to make a blind bit of difference essentially to emergency housing uh, for, for women fleeing abusive relationships. And we know that that is one of the key areas of vulnerability, of intense vulnerability, not just for women, but for young children who are so often traveling with women as they try to flee and they've got nowhere to go. They get turned away again and again. And I just thought you can't really be that serious about that aspect of this issue. If in all of this budget, as we run into trillions, a trillion dollars of debt, as we run to debt, net debt running to over 40% of GDP, that the best you can come up with is basically a rounding error. 
at the back yeah. of everything else. So I, I, I found that as I've got to say, some of uh, the women in our office who were kind of going through it uh, went, went thought well, that that really stands out. Um, you know, maybe more will come in that space, but it's not in the budget. So well, who knows? And it's hard. To, and again, like, even if you're a listener and you're cynical about the government's motives on this front and that they're, I think Katie Gallagher summed it up beautifully uh, in, in a grad that I'm pretty sure I used in one of the packages, you know, around budget she made the point that does anyone really believe that any of this would be happening were it not for the Brittany Higgins allegations and responses and and a host of other issues I think she's absolutely right about that but even if you are that cynical and I don't even think you need to be that cynical to feel that way but even if you are and have that view and share that view it still surprises me that the government wouldn't say well privately yep you're damn right that's the only reason we're acting but boy because of that, we really now need to seem to be acting. So let's get on with it and let's really put some uh, some cash into this so that it looks like we're putting some care into it as well. It, it, it is nickels and dime stuff in the context of this budget. And and it's, it's almost worse now, Hugh, because of the size of the debt and the spend elsewhere. I mean, imagine being a, a person working in that vulnerability space or indeed being a woman who has faced it and seeing such a small quantum of money go in at the same time as seeing the tens of billions going into things like aged care, NDIS, uh, and a whole, well, and business incentive tax structuring as well, knowing that there are phase three high income and the tax cuts just over the horizon also, and yet you're getting the nickels and dimes. I just don't understand the politics of that. Yeah, and a lot of people saying, look, why are we spending more on on defence? You, you know, like I, I personally, I'm a defence conservative, uh, so, uh, you know, I, I think that uh, it can be an error uh, not to keep ourselves on a, on a def- you know, to have a viable defence force to me is a valuable and essential part of, of, you know, some would say a fundamental part of what a government's responsibility is to their own people. Um, one of my favourite sayings is weakness is provocation. Uh, history has shown again and again that uh, if you, uh, if you, are unable to project a capacity to uh, to defend your interests in your borders, then others who are bigger and stronger will come along and take advantage of that. And so I I I would make an argument that much as you want defence spending to be fundamentally wasted spending, you don't want to have to use it in an mm. annihilating war. Uh, at the same time, I'd make a case for defence spending, but I. I, I totally accept that there are others who take different views of this and when you're seeing billions of dollars uh, going in defense spending and and yet you know what is being spent on the defense of women at critical times in an era when now no one can look away from the fact that a woman is killed in domestic violence every week in Australia uh, and that innumerable women and children suffer from violence every week uh, in in Australia and the protections, the immediate practical protections around them have not been properly been reflected in this budget. Um, I, I, I think, uh, I, you know, I could understand why people would take a view about something like defence. You, you know, you don't want to be say, saying, look, the disabled should give up money to do this. Mm. Or that people, uh, you know, we saw the horrific stuff that came out of the uh, Royal Commission into aged care, you know, that that you know, the horrendous stuff. I can't even speak it, but the prime minister has talked about maggots and wounds and so on in, in pressure wounds of neglected people in, in aged care. 
you can't take money away from them so that you can prop up. No, I agree. But you still need to deal with it. Yeah, and it it, it is analogous. I mean, that's the way I think of it. You know, the the challenges uh, around things like domestic violence uh, and those physical threats that women face is analogous to the need to look after are most vulnerable, whether it's aged care or in the disability sector. Uh, I would also argue in a welfare provision sector, which is why I'm an advocate for things like a universal basic income, but that's a whole other debate. Uh, so, you know, all of this though leads to one thing, doesn't it? Which neither side of politics are willing to embrace and certainly wasn't part of the raison d'etre of either budget speech, you know, budget and reply or the budget itself. But we need to have a conversation in this country about what we expect and want of government. And we need to resolve in that conversation whether we want government to do more or whether we want government to do less. And I have little doubt based on the amount of spending and the size of the structural deficit, not just because of the pandemic, frankly, the post-pandemic environment has given the government, the coalition, the opportunity to start spending in areas it otherwise needed to because it no longer has to go after that vacuous claim of of a balanced budget or back in black. So we have structural deficit problems which are not post-pandemic caused. They are underlying from years of neglect and underspending, frankly, on both sides to some extent. Now, we need to then have the debate, what do we want of government? And I think most Australians want a government which becomes a if you like, a social liberal government that actually spends up more to ensure that we have these safety nets. If you fall vulnerable to disability, if you fall vulnerable to the welfare system, when you get older, and of course, we've already got the ingrained system of Medicare, which is already getting more expensive as health gets more expensive. We want all of this from government. But if we want it all, we then have to have an accepting and understanding debate about changing tax structures. Because if we want all of that, we can't just run debt debt and deficit and have structural deficits going forward. We need to pivot to a bigger spending as a percentage of GDP as an accepted approach. And it needs to therefore be what we embrace so that we don't just have base political debates constantly about blowing out uh, of taxes and, and therefore kicking governments out because they want to tax more. If the public wants more from government, the public has to accept that we have to tax more to do it because otherwise, how do you pay for it? Growth is the answer, but we might get onto that and, uh, and how it sits up as an argument. We'll take a quick break back in just a moment. Welcome back, episode 93 of The Professor and the Hack. And uh, PVU, you're, you're PVO, you're making the point about, uh, you know, do we want a social liberal government? Is that what people are calling for? That these, these essentially the very expensive elements of the budget, uh, mm. you know, the previously been seen as welfare issues, but with the health issues, uh, aged care, disability, uh, how do we pay for it if it's not out of well, higher taxes? Well, look, yeah, I think I think higher taxes are unavoidable if you want to have a bigger government that does more, uh, because that's just the way it goes. But it becomes about how you structure those higher taxes, because as you mentioned before the break, Hugh, growth, growing the pie, as Paul Keating originally called it, uh, is a way to get out of deficit. The bigger your economy gets and the faster you can have that GDP growth, you can grow your way out of structural deficit. But that is contingent on a lot of things. So you want to support that growth, firstly. So in other words, tax structures that maximise business investment, this is a very liberal argument, help with that growth. That is all true. But but 
that growth can be, you know, if you like countrywide growth at that big picture level, but if it's supported by things like immigration and population growth is therefore part of it at that individual level, you still need to make sure that people are getting looked after if they're vulnerable and all the rest of it, which I still think leads us back to a tax debate, but it becomes about, okay, what taxes, if we accept that we want to be a social liberal uh, country and we want government to do more for us and therefore it has to spend more, we do therefore need to accept that it will need to tax more, but then you have to have the debate about what that taxing more looks like to ensure it doesn't become growth stifling tax as opposed to growth enhancing tax structures of a bigger government and that, and that's where the debate shifts to and that's 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 an intellectual debate I'm happy to have because it, it it's it's rooted in understanding of economics what I don't want is the rubbishy political debate about oh you're putting up taxes so what if they're taxes that are going to help pay for things that's fine as long as they don't stymie growth let's have that debate what do you make of the debate about uh, big governments? One thing about big Australia, obviously migration has been uh, stifled by uh, the pandemic. Uh, the expectation in the budget is that it will resume, uh, come back gangbusters at some point. Uh, but there are those who resist that and say, well, look, mm. if you want to put, get wages up, um, don't keep importing people. Try and find, uh, you know, not only employment, but also stronger wages from the workforce that's available in the country. And that has some sympathy across parts of the country. I think it, it helps fuel um, certainly some of the expectations of people who are coalition voters, but particularly those who might be drawn towards people like One Nation and so on. How do you think that argument is going to play? Well, I think it's a really difficult one because, I mean, just on the economics of it, uh, there's an almost universal consensus that higher immigration is good for a country, but that is large, and that that is largely partly, well, that is in large part because higher immigration results in population growth, which grows the size of 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 the the pool of tax revenue and the workforce and all the rest of it. But it doesn't necessarily guarantee individual better off individuals being better off. You know that that we've got higher you know, wages all around the joint. It, it does, in some respects, the opposite. But well, it's this is the argument about per capita growth, isn't it? Because you say, exactly, yes, the country's exactly. growing, but we've got more people, so divide it by the people. And in fact, we're not better exactly. off. Exactly, exactly. And and the problem, and look, it does, there's a contestation in that space because one of the arguments is that even with more people, we're better off because of the, the increased scale, if you like, that we have to compete on in a globalised world on an international level. So there's, it is contested. But it's it's an interesting debate in a pure economic sense. My issue with, well, I have a general sympathy to some extent for this idea of the the Bob Carr, you know, less immigration can work well because it puts less pressure on housing and all these sorts of things. I've got some sympathy for that. But what I don't like about that debate is that you end up getting into bed, if you will, with those one nation types who have got a different reason for embracing it. If you want to be an economist, who wants to make the argument for why we don't need larger immigration for better off, better, people being better off individually, that's an interesting debate for me. But if you win that debate because the xenophobes join you in your argument and they're purely interested in reducing particular forms of migration or creating fear of the foreigner or whatever it might be, that, that's an unwanted advance for me. And so this is where it is a difficult debate. On the pandemic, though, I think I do think that side of the debate is getting more legs. And I think it is harder 
for the traditional conservative position that we've seen for many, many years. Certainly John Howard did this well, you know, where he played to, to the, the notion of the other with his refugee policies, which a lot of people found appalling, particularly around asylum seekers and boat people, right? However, he had a two-step trick with that, where at the same time as that going on, when he created that sort of confidence that that some people had in his ability to maintain borders with that, he then cracked open immigration in a way that, you know, no prime minister really has for a long time before him. Um, I don't know that that's still a two-step process that can be done. Liberals used to want to do that because of the economic benefits to cracking open immigration. Now I think voters who are concerned uh, both for the economy and some elements of xenophobia uh, are looking very closely at immigration uh, as people taking their jobs and so it's it's a difficult debate post pandemic now. I think. Yeah, it's funny. It's funny. It, there is in conservative politics or right of centre politics uh, across the world these enormous um, kind of reversals. It's almost like a. It's almost like the poles have shifted. The North Pole is the South Pole, and vice versa. So we're seeing, you know, con- coalition treasurer there talking the virtues of of lots of debt. I'm going to get to that in one second. But you notice it in the Republican Party in the U.S. where Two things that you could rely on for the Republicans, the establishment Republican Party believed in two things fundamentally. One was hawkishness on defense and America's military posture towards the world. And the other was certainly post uh, Reagan, small government, low taxes, essentially neoliberal economic policies. There's now this debate that says we don't want to be involved, this is Americans, uh, in all the wars around the world. Trump brought this in, you know, let's just cool our jets, stay home, people can fight their own battles. And the other thing is that there is a recognition from the, essentially all those people who voted for Trump, or a a sizable proportion of them, are people who have lost out on that neoliberal uh, agenda. The Republicans rely on them, and they're now looking to meet their needs by essentially uh, not going to neoliberalism, to find other ways in which um, essentially jobs can be protected, etc. This leads Mm. me to the Australian environment with the same thing seems to be going on. And the key question about debt. And I want to go, if you're following this at home, page 364 and 365 of budget paper number one <laughs> lays out deficit. And if any, if, if, Hugh, if anyone has that open in front of them, I pity them immediately. Yeah, but it's a great, <laughs> look, this is a great page because in all of you know the the you know the booklets and everything else like that, it's the one mm. that goes to the numbers on debt and deficit. And they're all laid out there. And uh, Paul Keating, 95-96, the last year of the Keating government, had debt as a percentage of GDP at 18.2%. So that was the worst it was, 18.2%, going back to forever. This budget has us heading towards net debt to GDP of over 40%, so more than twice as a proportion of GDP. That is on any level on the face of it, utterly, utterly calamitous, except for this. The next column goes to the point of how much is the interest payment? How much does it cost to service that massive 40% debt? It's so low at the moment, yeah. Yes, because interest rates are so low, it's at 0.7% of GDP, to service this trillion dollar debt, 0.7, go back to Paul Keating, it was at 1.7%. So the actual 
cost of servicing debt because of the price of money back in those days was more than twice as high as a drain on the economy uh, in the last stages of Keating. So, and so that's why some economists, not all, are more relaxed about the debt that we're, we're going ah, into now. But, yes. and the, but, and this is the, the, the big unknown, where on earth are interest rates going to be at in the years ahead while debt continues to accumulate with little prospect of it coming off? Because here's where the rubber hits the road on this debate. A lot of economists think that, interest rates staying low, even if they go up slightly, is pretty much now a a, a, a forever proposition. So therefore they say, oh, 40% GDP, you know, debt to GDP, don't need to be too worried about that because that is so meaningless in the context of today with where interest rates are at versus much lower debt to GDP like you just highlighted during the Keating era when interest rates were absolutely in double digits sky high. Now, if they're right, then they're right. But if they're wrong, and if interest rates do have the capacity to again go to where they have historically gone, oh my God, the mountain of debt becomes a huge serviceability issue just paying off the interest alone. But here's the even more scary thing. If that happens in Australia, it likely happens everywhere in the world. And we're at 40% debt to GDP. But when you look at the US, when you look at Europe, when you look at Japan in particular, not just 100% debt to GDP, 200% and above even, in some of these countries like Japan, it is extraordinary. If interest rates go north, these countries go bankrupt. It is literally that simple, which is probably why they don't go north, because there's enough structures and safeguards in place that reserve banks the world over can avoid it. But I tell you what, Hugh, that to me is the risk for future generations, because they're not going to go north in a year or two or three or four or five or even a decade in any meaningful way. But if you look forward more than a decade, and if they meaningfully go north, and if 40% by then is still at 40%, or worse still goes up to 60 or 70, or even if we pull it back to 20 or 30% of debt to GDP, if interest rates quadruple, or even much more than that, all of a sudden, Houston, we have a problem. Yeah, and the US, you know, the stirring of inflation, the first flickers of it possibly happening there, putting some shivers through the market. Tony Shepard, mm. former head of the Business Council and sort of favorite business advisor mm. to conservative government, saying with a trillion dollars of debt, you can't live on the assumption that interest rates will stay ridiculously low forever. The argument that gets put by Josh Frydenberg and others is that uh, we will grow at a faster rate than interest rates will grow, thereby debt as a proportion of GDP will fall. Problem solved. Ain't that perfect economics? Um, it's not quite you know. that simple. <laughs> yeah. Hey, just on one thing, we're nearly out of time, but um, mm. Josh, Josh Frydenberg, there's, uh, there's kind of two takes on this. I actually thought, by the way, that his uh, budget that came down just before the election uh, last time was somewhat uh, overlooked as a factor in the return of the Morrison government. A lot was made about how Labour balls it up and how Morrison campaigned so hard to the finish line and all that kind of stuff. But, um, but, but he, he crafts a narrative around a budget, which is uh, much better than his predecessor, one Scott Morrison, and certainly mm -hmm. far better than, um, than Joe Hockey. But I'm interested in this take about this particular personality of our political times. Mm. Uh, has he 
burnished with this budget, his credentials as the inevitable next leader of the Liberal Party and also one of the most significant figures of this period of coalition government? Or might he be remembered simply as that guy, Josh Frydenberg, who was the bloke who essentially sunk the country into perpetual debt? Uh, I think he can recover from it. Uh, I think he can actually craft the narrative as not that, but as the treasurer who got us through the pandemic uh, and ensured that, you know, unemployment didn't become the problem so we could focus on growth instead with virtual full employment. Now, that's his spin. That's what he'll want it to be. But even if it all goes south and even if the Morrison government gets remembered a little bit like the Fraser government, which was a government that put us into recession and was debt riddled and frankly did very little by way of major reform, it just splashed the cash a uh, fistful of dollars, if you will, which I think was the the slogan and the and the and the illustration from the Fraser years towards the end with Howard as treasurer. This is the thing that Josh Fry, I put this to him at the National Press Club. This is the thing that Josh Fryden will want Frydenberg will want to remember. John Howard became Australia's second longest serving Prime Minister, known as the fiscal conservative, uh, you know, regarded in liberal circles, certainly as a very good, strong, reforming, fiscally conservative Prime Minister. Now he was a six-year treasurer in the Fraser government where he handed down one small surplus. And other than that, it was wall-to-wall deficits and a recession that he presided over. And he was seen as a bit of a weak treasurer in the wake of the presence of Malcolm Fraser. Now, it took him 13 long years in opposition to recalibrate himself out of the wilderness to become that long-term prime minister. The issue for Josh Frydenberg is this. I think he's in the wrong place at the wrong time. Uh, because, you know, he either gets a short prime ministership a la Keating without winning the 93 election, or uh, he takes over in opposition and first-term opposition leaders never become prime minister unless he's in it for the long haul. Does his ambition put him in it for the long haul? If the answer to that is yes, then he could come out the other side of it. He's still a relatively young man in his 40s as a John Howard-esque figure, but it could be a long road for him because his timing is bad you know, good on him for being Deputy Liberal Leader and Treasurer, but his timing if he wanted to be a long-term Prime Minister anytime soon is bad because this is already a long-term Liberal government and Scott Morrison ain't going anywhere unless the voters put the boot in. Well, doubtless when we're up to episode 9,400 and God knows what uh, of this <laughs> podcast, we'll be able to look back at the glittering career or otherwise of Josh Frydenberg and we will then know the answers. Uh, until then, um, good to talk to you as always, Peter. See you. Listening to a 10 News First podcast for 10 Speaks.